0: Welcome to Econoday Unplugged. Each week our expert team explains the relationship between economic announcements and market reaction. For over 25 years, Econoday has provided value for the investment industry, amassing a comprehensive, machine-readable database of global market events. Econoday provides solutions for macroeconomics, sovereign debt, agricultural commodities and historical data, all delivered by API, XML and HTML. Connect the dots with Econoday. Subscribe to the Econoday Unplugged podcast and go to www.econoday.com to follow market events. Hello and welcome to Econoday Unplugged. It's Tuesday, sixteenth of April, twenty nineteen. Mark Pender is across the pond on the US East Coast, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. So financial markets seem to be taking a slightly more optimistic view of how the global economy is doing. Investors are certainly hoping for good news out of a a range of trade talks between the US and China, US, Japan and the US and the European Union. And of course, there's increasing confidence that the Fed could be on hold for some while. But don't get too excited, because just last week, the IMF was warning that it's a delicate moment for the world business activity. And it's none too happy either with the way in which politics is increasingly sticking its nose into monetary policy. So let's kick off with the data. Mr. Pender, you've an important week for US numbers. So what should we be focusing upon? And what do you think they're going to tell us about the health of the US economy?
1: Well, uh, this morning uh, this is uh, Tuesday, April sixteenth we had industrial production, and it was um, not very uh, not very strong. We had uh, uh, no change for the manufacturing component, which uh, is the most important. Um, um, uh, piece of this report. It, and this followed two declines uh, in the prior month, pretty substantial ones of a 0.3 uh, negative and 0.5. So um, the manufacturing sector here, it stumbled at year end, uh, and it really hasn't uh, gotten back on its feet. Uh, this data doesn't break down exports, but they are, you know, in between the lines uh, mm-hmm. uh, of, uh, you know, to blame or uh, it's not the margin. And, and that's really, I think, what's pulling this uh, pulling uh, this sector down. The sector is very closely watched as. Um, considered to be a leader in uh, cyclical variation so uh, right now it doesn't this is not very promising for the 2019 economy as a whole Another thing that had a very bad year last year was housing right straight through the year. But then we had a big drop in mortgage rates, and they are coming down very substantially right now, right at the right time for the housing sector, which is the beginning of the spring um, uh, selling season. Uh, But optimism is not really all that great. We had the housing market index from the nation's home builders um, uh, this morning, and it did inch forward, but it's still – uh, lagging uh, very clearly below where it was. Uh, it trended through uh, most of last year. This index really came down really in a shocking way in November last year. It was really one of the very first cracks in the U.S. economic data um, going into the uh, at the end of the fourth quarter, and that was um, uh, really underscored by the 1.6% plunge in reta- December retail sales, which really hasn't really... Uh, uh Federal Reserve policymakers still refer to this. This is a, kind of a stunning uh, – it was a stunning uh, decline and very, very unexpected. And we're getting retail sales uh, on Thursday this week. This is going to be for March. And we. Um, the expectations are looking for a really uh, substantial um, – uh, a jump a correction but what's interesting about that I it just is the assumption it, it just uh, uh, it, retail sales really can't be this weak. I think is what the underlying assumption is they they improved uh, in January but that was an easy comparison against a very very weak uh, December again and um, but then they came back uh, in, back into the na- negative column at in February so there's just this assumption that it's going to jump but March is uh, this March is not an easy month for the retailers because of the April ship the April uh, April Easter uh, the Easter ship that moved from April 1st last year to um, Sunday uh, of course uh, April 21st this year and that uh, Easter has a very uh, significant uh, impact on the consumer uh, spending and um, so March is kind of battling against a calendar effect but still there is a a, a, a really strong assumption that we're going to see recovery. And if it's based anything on the employment, on you know, uh, the actual demand for labor, even though we had, again, that, that rough February for the employment report, uh, most of the labor indicators are positive, and there's no real indication that there's been any kind of crack uh, in, um, in, in the labor market. So the, uh, the consumer sh- uh, should be coming back. But we do have to see, wait and see. Um, but like forecasters are pretty firm. There's very little uh, expectation for um, uh, the range is high on the uh, the range is high on the high end, but pretty stable uh, on the low end. At zero point three being uh, the the lowest expectation uh, on our panel, and that's that would still be a positive month. Um, and then real quickly uh, is trade now. Um, uh, uh if, if the manufacturing sector is being hurt by trade, we're going to, uh, and we saw it last year, we saw the trade deficit really widen. Uh, deepen uh, very very much, but then it, it popped back, narrowed substantially in um, January. This is going to be data for February, and this is going to be tomorrow. And um, the consensus is uh, a fifty three point six billion dollar monthly uh, deficit. That would be uh, deeper than by two and a half billion dollars, which is pretty substantial from January. But this is this deficit was approaching sixty billion dollars uh, at the end of last year. So there's uh, improvement is. Still expected there, and for GDP, it's that it, it's the improvement that that will that that could help net exports for the first quarter. But um, uh, I think your your assessment is probably right that there is improvement, but the improvement is coming from kind of a shaky base, and we still have to see how that plays out.
0: Okay, can I just rewind now to, to one of the first indicators you talked about mm-hmm. you know, from the, the manufacturing side, um, the industrial production data today. Am I yeah. right in saying that capacity utilization fell for, was it, the fourth month in a row? So, I mean, does this mean supply-side price pressures are starting to ease despite the tight labor market?
1: Well, we had some revisions in the uh, capacity utilization, and it did come down uh, to um, uh, 78.8% Um And uh, there is uh, it it, from the revisions. It it looks like even though the the direction is down, uh, it 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 looks like uh, there was you know a a tighter um, uh, uh, supply in the um in in the factory sector or in the industrial sector. uh, I'm not sure what to make of the ca- capacity utilization we've been talking about uh, this is a kind of an inflationary reading um, if, if it gets uh, uh, you know too tight then uh, concerns are that the prices are going to um, rise um, but I'm not sure uh, you can really read that uh, into this but uh, and we've talked about uh, you know why is inflation so subdued? And it and maybe it's just because there's so many goods uh, available right now. And uh, so you if you if, take the venezuela as the as the opposite example, where you have no goods and you have huge amount of inflation, well, Uh, Really, the the developed global economy, in part because of Chinese manufacturing, is just flooded with goods. So, I mean, I don't see a lot of of, of potential of inflation on goods uh, in in the goods sector here uh, uh, for right now.
0: Okay, fair enough. Before we leave the states, I've got to ask you, because um, there's a lot of sort of stuff in the press at the moment about Fed bashing coming out of the White House. Is Mm. there, I mean, we've seen sort of political interference perhaps in terms of the RBI, Well, we had the governor changed at the back end of last year. It's certainly been a case of interference out of the government in terms of the Central Bank of Turkey. So I was wondering, from the state side, do you think what appears to be, as I say, people call it Fed bashing, is it having any impact on US markets or US sentiment in any way? Or people simply disregarding it.
1: Um, I'm not sure they're disregarding it. I think that there is historically uh, central bankers are not the most powerful people in the uh, economy, are not the most powerful people uh, in the government, and uh, even um, uh, you know very strong uh, central banks such as the Bundesbank had you know uh, occasionally they were overruled by the government or or sidestepped by the government mm-hmm. um, or, or laws. Were, or were, uh, are changed to um, to in if the government wants more stimulus and the central bankers aren't giving it then the you can actually change the laws right to um, uh, so you uh, so central bankers, you know, they, they, we give them, uh, we put them high up on the podium as being very, very super powerful, and they are when everything is, um, you know, going as planned. But during pivots and in these kinds of things, uh, they, you know, their, uh, you know, their weakness or their their comparative weakness to the elected officials uh, begins to show. Um, I, I just I sort of wonder
0: if you know, in tr- in the t- context of I it boils down to really, what what, it, what does it mean for policy? Could it be the case that let's suppose the US does start to slow down here forth? So the next move in Fed funds is most likely to be down, let's say, rather than up. And then we continue to get effectively the White House telling the Fed what it should be doing with interest rates. Does that potentially then backfire in the sense that the Fed becomes less likely to cut rates simply because it's being told what to do with its policy from the people living in the White House?
1: Well, in this case, it may be I think that there has been a, um, a friction with um, Jerome Powell and President Trump I think that uh, you can uh, see it in a, a movement or a, a uh, how the Fed pays very much attention to the Democrats, uh, the, the rival political party in Washington. And so um, you have, I think, that they can play off of uh, the Fed can uh, play off of the Democrats and uh, and perhaps limit um, uh the, the administration's effect now uh, you know uh, they're putting uh, um, uh, people uh, the president trump is um, he, he hasn't been able to fill a couple of these seats uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh people have withdrawn their their nominations uh over the last year or so and now he's he's putting in uh political uh, supporters of his and um so Whether that will fly, the Democrats do control the Senate and they may be able to get it in. But it would be it's an interesting uh, politicalization of the Fed that we haven't seen uh, here in the U.S., um, I guess, since the 70s. So uh, um, it it is it's playing out. I'm not sure, uh, you know, it's it's. Um, it the, the inflation it, it's not like we're in a dangerous inflation zone where right. where the government would be saying you know we, we can't you know, support any more uh, boom and growth anymore. Uh, elected officials can say this if there's a lot of inflation and and the currency uh, suffers, but that's not really what the case is here. So um, I'm not sure it's going to have a, a very dramatic effect. I think the Fed showed its resistance last year. It didn't. Uh, it, it continued to raise rates even at the height. Of uh, President Trump calling him local and, and and whatnot, um, and now they they are winding down their uh, quantitative tightening, but they're doing it in a in this kind of for you know relatively slow motion way, and so they're sticking to their guns. The, the Fed, I don't think that they're and they you know do they really have the power to get away with resisting um, uh, President Trump for very long? I mean, there's the question of can he fire? Jerome Powell, and uh, and I guess some of the answers are no, but he can certainly turn the heat up on them as he has, and it's a, and uh, I guess you know uh, it's an interesting thing, uh, it's an interesting uh, you know uh, thing to watch. It's it's something uh, very different, and it I I think it puts Jerome Powell in a very uh, uncomfortable position. Yeah, sure. Uh, and uh, well, how is this playing? How does uh, uh, this playing in Europe right now? This uh, the, the Fed and the, and President Trump.
0: Well, one reason I do mention is, I mean, over here, now, unusually, had Mario Draghi, who was, uh, I think, is attending a conference. Who um, he came out and, and without actually naming, I don't think he actually named the White House or Donald Trump per se, but he was definitely making noises that, that central bank's independence is a, you know, a primary factor in terms of, you know, um, managing financial markets and should not be interfered with. And it was the IMF meeting at the back end of last week, the their World Economic Forum, um, which saw again. The same sort of language being used, so I think there are some genuine worries at the moment amongst monetary authorities around the world that political interference could become, you know, something of a major issue in due course. So, in any event, I think it's certainly something worthwhile keeping
1: an eye on. Well, you mentioned the RBI earlier—that's the Reserve Bank of India—and uh, they're um, cutting rates now, but they also have an election coming up. Uh, uh, you know, so is they there? Exactly. So
0: now- I mean, we saw we saw the um um is President Modi um changing the the governor of the RBI at the back end of last year. We've had what I think is it a couple of cuts um this year in RBI interest rates already. As you say, with uh, you know this election just about to kick off, so you've got to kind of wonder whether or not they're justified. And I think to be fair, we look at the Indian data and some of it's doing quite well, but other bits of it aren't doing so well. So you perhaps could justify uh, perhaps an easing bias. but I'm not totally convinced you could. Uh, yeah, justify the cuts in rates we've already seen so far this
1: year. Well, I have a general question about European um, financial soundness. Now, here in the U.S., we, you know, we're running up to just tremendous deficits, whether government deficits or whether trade deficits. Is there um, a, a more traditional uh, prudence uh, in, uh, for instance, in in, in Germany? Uh, say, oh, uh, in
0: Ger- in Germany, most definitely yes. I mean Germany effectively isn't happy unless he has got a, a budget surplus and this has been one of the issues for the other Eurozone members when they were struggling to look across at Germany and think well look you've got a big surplus start spending on it boost your domestic demand so we can export more to you to get our economy going again but I think as a result of the you know the, the, the fiscal and growth pact that the European Union works under uh, you have know, the relatively strict rules um, which tie the hands of many politicians terms of what they can do so essentially they try to put a limit on uh, government deficit as percentage of GDP at three percent and for Eurozone as a whole now it's tracking what probably close to about one percent or something like that so because they've actually managed their fiscal side most countries relatively well over the last year or so they've actually got room to do a bit of reflating should it be the case that the slowdown we've got in most of the Eurozone economy at the moment continues so that's at least is something I think one of the worries in Europe when we look across to your side in the states and they see the size of a deficit and let's suppose the US does slow then you know, how much more room is there left for the. US to fiscally reflate uh, without really causing potentially some major problems for the bond markets? Um, okay, on the ECB. Quickly, I should just, um, before we drag on for too long, just mention. Last week we saw uh, the ECB announcement, which had no surprises at all, really, um, no changes in policy whatsoever, be it in terms of the interest rates, uh, quantitative easing, or indeed crucial the forward guidance as well. So essentially, if the ECB gets it way in terms of things are shaping out currently, we're talking about zero short-term interest rates, um, ECB interest rates, right through to the back end of this year. Um, Draghi's still got a negative assessment, though, in terms of economic risk. So I guess you've got to say if there were to be any kind of change, it would still be down. In terms of the numbers, there have actually ironically been some slightly better figures out of the eurozone over the course of the last week or so. Uh, Particularly, I think one thing which helped the euro at the back end of last week, the industrial production data. I mean, for February, it shows how people have come used to poor numbers out of of the eurozone. Industrial production for the eurozone as a whole fell 0.2% on the month in Feb. So nothing to write home about, but it was still better than expected. And importantly, the, the January numbers revised up significantly. What it means is that it's almost certain now, subject to any revisions, that uh, Eurozone goods production will make a positive contribution to first quarter GDP, which it didn't of the previous two quarters. So that's got folks hoping, well, perhaps the worst of the slowdown in Eurozone is now over. To that end, we'll get the flash PMIs on Thursday. These will be for April. Keeping on them because whether they work or not, it's certainly something that uh, investors uh, for Europe pay close attention to.
1: Now, Jeremy, I have a question about – maybe to close, uh, wind up, but um, we left uh, the last month or so, Italy in technical recession and the German – at the end of last year – and the German industrial sector – uh, if if not in recession, in recession bordering on it. What, what's the outlook now for the first quarter?
0: Well, this is the thing. One of the real problems, I suppose, of any economist when they're trying to analyze these numbers is working out whether you can trust the figures in the first place. What we've seen as a result of the February industrial production numbers, we've seen significant upward revisions coming through to most of the major countries for January, which meant what appeared to be a pretty lousy turn of the year now doesn't look anything like as bad. Now, Germany at the moment, in terms of Germans in German se- industrial sector, looks like now it will emerge from recession in the first quarter. Um, it didn't look like that this time last week. Um, because we didn't have the big up revision they put through to the January industrial production data, but it now looks as if, in a nutshell, that we're going to see a small positive contribution uh, from overall industrial production for the eurozone to eurozone GDP. But within that, Germany, notwithstanding, it's still going to be a soft picture for Germany. Italy may come out with a small plus as far as the first quarter is concerned. But even if we do see that, I think you know, when we look at the forward-looking guides, so you know what's happening to order books back and new business and so on they're still soft and if anything trending down so i think even if we do get let's say a mini bounce in the first quarter the second quarter is still going to look pretty soggy i suspect mm-hmm. so it's better than it was but nothing to write home about and i think
1: that's a very under underappreciated separation you're making between um orders and actual production
0: yeah, I think the markets tend to what's happening now. Sometimes mm-hmm. you've really got to think about, well, what can we learn now about what's likely to happen mm-hmm. in the future?
1: And here we're seeing the drawdowns on unfilled orders. So, um, you know, they're keeping production up, but they're, you know, it, where where the new orders going to be coming
0: from? Yeah, so. you can't keep running off back orders all the time. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Oh, I suppose quickly before we go, I don't leave without a quick update on Brexit, which I'm delighted to say for once, you know, European investors are not glued to their TV screens, radios, whatever it may be about that. But following last week's emergency EU summit, in a nutshell, Brexit day has now been deferred again until the end of of October. Um, But it's flexible in a sense that the UK could opt to leave before then if they can get some kind of treaty agreed. Um, And the other caveat is if a UK refuses to participate in the European parliamentary elections, and they kick off on the 23rd of May, they don't have to leave by the 1st of June anyway. So the bottom line is that all the options are still open. We can when leave with-, with or without a deal. We could have a new prime minister, a general election, a second referendum. So at this a- stage, we still don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, sorry. Is there
1: going to be a gigantic, dramatic fight over the European, UK's participation in the, Euro- in the European elections?
0: Well, see, the thing is that the, no one in the UK, all those people who think the UK should not be part of the European Union over the next year, you know, think there's absolutely no point in the UK voting for something, um, part of which we're not going to be in a, potentially in a case of a matter of a few months. But the problem for the European Union is that if, let's say, after May, the UK is still part of the European Union, that is, Brexit hasn't happened then the new constitution wouldn't fi- wouldn't be legal because we're part of the EU and any country that's part of the EU has to have European parliamentary representation. So it really is a right raw mess at the moment, and say something which has still very much got to be sorted out. But as I say, in terms of market, you know, where the markets are taking it, they perceive the extensions as perhaps increasing the chances of a decent deal, perhaps Brexit won't happen at all, et cetera, et cetera. So it's taken away the sort of the immediate risk of a no deal cliff edge, as they call it. But at the end of the day, all the options are still there. OK, well, on the hope that we haven't prattled on for too long this time round. Um, On behalf of Mark and myself, thanks as ever for listening. Um, We'd like to take this chance to offer everyone a happy Easter break. And remember, in the words of someone anonymous, Easter tastes better than Halloween and you don't have to ring all the doorbells either. We'll be back next week. Bye for now. Econoday has provided value for the investment industry for over 25 years, amassing a comprehensive machine readable database of global market events. Our exceptional dataset consists of consensus, actual reported, and revised numbers of economic events. Algorithmic trading firms, global banks, asset managers, hedge funds, and AI technology firms are leveraging Econoday's unique historical dataset to fuel their proprietary trading models and support their research and compliance teams. Go to www.econoday.com and follow at Econoday on Twitter to learn more.